Hello, and welcome to the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss anything that is bizarre, mysterious, and unexplained. I'm your host, Sean, and for this episode, I will be presenting a few cases in which someone went missing suddenly and without a trace. Each of these topics and cases are pretty disturbing in their nature, as it is uncomfortable for most to think about that they could be going about their daily lives one minute, and in the next, you are simply gone, never to be seen again. And in this first case, we will be talking about the disappearance of Danielle Embo and Richard Patrone. And this case was suggested to us by Kim. So thank you, Kim, for sending this in to us. This disappearance took place on February 2005. Danielle Embo and Richard Patrone had spent the night at a South Street bar in Philadelphia. Close to midnight, the pair walked out of the bar heading to Richard's truck, and then simply vanished, completely and without a trace. There would be no bloodstains, no signs of violence, no witnesses, and most frustratingly, no clues. It has been 11 years since they were last seen, and to this day the question remains, what really happened that night? This case begins on Saturday, February 19th, 2005. Richard Patrone Jr. of South Philadelphia and his friend, Daniel Embo from New Jersey, were hanging out at Abilene's Bar on South Street in Philly. The two were old family friends who had dated in the past. Richard and Danielle had met up with a few other friends at the bar and spent a few hours there. Close to midnight at around 11.45pm, the two left Abilene's and were heading for Richard's 2001 Black Dodge Dakota pickup truck with Pennsylvania license plate numbers... YFH2319, which was parked nearby in the neighborhood. The plan that others had heard was that Richard was going to drop off Danielle at her South Jersey home before returning to his own in South Philadelphia. Once they left the bar, however, no one would ever see either one of them again. Neither Richard, Danielle, nor the truck has been seen since. And even stranger about this whole case is that there has been no traces or clues as to their whereabouts in the 11-year span since this night took place. The investigation that followed involved officials from the two states of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, as well as the FBI getting involved. Despite the massive police force and investigative efforts, though, even after more than a decade, no one has been able to answer the question of what happened to the couple. No witnesses saw them actually get in Richard's vehicle or drive off. Video cameras at highway toll plazas and river crossings have no record of Richard's truck passing through that night. The investigators also found that their cell phones had not been used once they left the bar, so neither one made any attempts to call or text anyone. To me, this shows that perhaps the pair was taken by surprise and didn't even have a chance to get a call out to the police. Also, there was no activity on their credit cards, which suggests that the motive wasn't a quick or meaningless robbery or attempt for a cash-out. Danielle's brother John vented his frustration with the lack of clues in an interview in 2010, saying, They walked out of Abilene, and from the minute they got out of the door, no one knows if they turned left or right. We don't even know if they made it to New Jersey. There were no clues or signs that either one of the pair would want to hurt or abduct the other. Family and friends who knew Richard and Danielle described the pair as stable, and the investigators turned up nothing suspicious about either one. Both of them had a child from a previous relationship and held good jobs. By all accounts, they were basically just normal people living normal lives, 
nothing which would throw up red flags to the police looking for any type of breadcrumb which could shed some light on this mystery. Despite all the effort put into finding the pair by the whole community, the case remains cold. But even 11 years later, friends, family, and law enforcement are still working hard in this case, unwilling to accept that these people could completely vanish off the face of the earth without a clue. Investigators have followed hundreds of leads in the past decade, and the case was even featured on America's Most Wanted. Though they could come up with no concrete evidence or clues, the investigators have looked into a few promising leads in the 11 years since, and have come up with a few theories as to what could have happened to the two. Usually when something like this happens, you would think to look into anyone close to the victim who would have an obvious motive to want to harm them. Now Danielle Embo had recently called things off with her former husband, who for those on the outside initially seemed like he would make a likely suspect. However, after the initial investigation, Danielle's ex-husband was deemed to have played no part in either her or Richard's disappearance. Given the logical route from South Street in Philly to Danielle's home at Mount Laurel, a roughly 30-minute and 20-mile trip, the early exhaustive searches of the area and possible accident investigations came up empty. Video footage from Bridge Toll Plazas turned up nothing, however, as did searches of the Delaware River. For all anyone knew, the couple or the truck had never even made it out of the city. Since there were practically zero clues and no evidence left behind, the investigators had no good idea of the events that led to the pair's disappearance. On the other hand, this lack of evidence does suggest one thing. Whoever was responsible for making Richard and Daniel disappear knew exactly what they were doing. The FBI believes that their disappearance was no accident, it was not a crime of opportunity. Instead, the FBI takes a stance that Richard Patrone and Daniel Embo were the victims of a professional hit job at the hands of more than one person. Just last year, FBI investigator Christian Zajac said about this crime, This didn't just happen. We feel this was an orchestrated act. A 3,000-pound truck and two people do not simply go missing. We are confident someone out there knows what happened. We need to be open to all possible leads out there. Despite staying optimistic, law enforcement still basically has no more information than they did at the time of the initial investigation. There is still a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of those responsible. Billboards around the area occasionally show the pictures of the lost pair in hopes that someone will remember something from that night. Despite the lack of proof, because of the circumstances surrounding their sudden and total disappearance, Richard Patron and Daniel Embo have both been pronounced dead. The next case we will be discussing is that of Angela Hammond. Angela Hammond was a 20-year-old woman in 1991, living in Clinton, Missouri. She was known as a friendly and helpful girl, known to her friends as Angie. She was currently taking classes at Central Missouri State University. At the time of the incident, she was engaged to Rob Schaefer, and by all accounts, they made a good couple. Angela was also several months pregnant with Rob's child. On the night of April 1st, 1991, Angie was calling her fiancé Rob from a payphone, which was just a short distance away from his house, that was in a parking lot of a food store. Interestingly enough, this payphone was only seven or so blocks from Rob's house, who was at the time babysitting for his younger brother. During the phone call, Angie mentioned to Rob that a rugged-looking bearded man had pulled into the parking lot in an old pickup truck, 
circling the lot several times before stopping. The man got out of the truck and got into the phone booth next to Angie, before returning to his truck and getting a flashlight out, supposedly shining it around as if he was looking for something. For the next couple minutes, the couple talked about the usual normal stuff. Angie had mentioned that she was too tired to meet up with Rob that night, as planned, and was just going to go home and take a bath. Suddenly, however, Angela Hammond screamed horribly into the phone. Rob shouted in vain several times into his home phone while listening helplessly, while his fiancée yelled on the other line before it suddenly cut off. Since she was so close, Rob sprinted out of his house to his own car, not even taking the time to hang up his phone. Rob jumped into his car and floored the gas, taking off, heading towards the parking lot just a few minutes up the road towards his endangered fiancée. Just a short distance up the road, though, he saw that an older green Ford F-150 pickup truck was approaching him. As the two vehicles passed, Rob believed that he heard someone inside shouting his name. He quickly slammed on the brakes and threw his car into reverse, swinging it around to chase the other vehicle. Just a few blocks down the road, though, he discovered that he had damaged his transmission by going into reverse while still going forward. His engine cut out, and Rob could only watch as the truck continued down the road until the taillights faded out from the distance. This would be the last time anyone would ever see Angela Hammond. After contacting the police, the investigation soon started into this odd and sudden abduction. Angela's car would be found in the parking lot. Unfortunately, this is before the time where video surveillance was common for small businesses, so there was no video evidence of what happened. Schaefer stated that the truck he saw had a decal of a water or some kind of outdoor scene that completely covered the rear window and what he believes was a white top to the truck. There were a few witnesses nearby who think they saw a Caucasian male driving a similar truck near the area of the telephone booth when Angela disappeared. This man was wearing coveralls and dark-colored baseball cap. He had eyeglasses, a beard, and a mustache. Unfortunately, to this day, neither this man or his truck have ever been found or identified. No other clues or evidence has ever been discovered or reported that could give any more information as to what happened that night Angela Hammond simply vanished. The fiancé Rob was investigated briefly, but he passed a polygraph test and Angela's family vouched for him, so he was cleared early on and hasn't been considered a likely suspect. There are some who have doubts with his story, though. You can kind of see how this entire chain of events of Angela's disappearance relies entirely on his word and testimony. He holds all the information that would be given to the police. He was the one on the phone with her. The scenario about this man in a pickup truck that Angie was describing is only known from his side of the story as well. And he knew exactly where and when Angie would be. With that said, again, anyone close to Angela could not believe that Rob could have any hand in it and supported him. Not to mention the fact that his little brother could vouch for his whereabouts as Rob was babysitting him at the time. There are quite a few things I find odd about this case, though. One is the phone call. If Angie had her car and was only a few minutes away from Rob's house, why not just drive over there instead of talking on a payphone in an empty parking lot for half an hour? Especially after seeing some weird guy driving circles around her in his truck, before getting out and acting strangely. By the way, Rob tells a story, they are just talking normally, and then she screams suddenly, as if taken from surprise. Now, I wasn't there, but personally, if I saw some weird guy around me and I'm all alone at midnight, 
I'm not going to take my eyes off him. Also, if I was on the other end and talking to my girl, I would not feel comfortable letting her continue talking, again all alone at night with a strange guy around, when I could just drive two minutes down the road and meet her myself. Another is the event with Rob's car and the damaged transmission. Now this was caused by putting his car into reverse while it was still going pretty fast forward down the road. It's understandable that Rob was distraught and panicked, but that is still a strange mistake to make to put your car into reverse before slowing down. It would be more understandable to me if he had flipped his car, trying to make a tight turn to follow the truck after his name being called from inside. But putting a car into reverse instead of slowing or trying to turn quickly doesn't make much sense to me. Though he was cleared, I have read a few theories of people who still think Rob had something to do with it. Perhaps he was getting cold feet about marrying Angie, feeling trapped by the current pregnancy, and was desperate for a way out. In this theory, Rob had paid or worked out something where an accomplice would abduct her. Though a bit far-fetched, especially with considering family and friends' assurances of his character, one could come up with a few reasons behind this idea. One is he knew Angie would make a call from that payphone that night, so he could let his partner in crime know where to get her and when. When this guy showed up, instead of grabbing her right away, he was acting strangely, circling around and then getting out and shining his flashlight around like he was looking for something. Perhaps he was biding time or working up the courage to go through with his kidnapping. Following this theory, it isn't odd that the phone call lasted so long when they were only a few minutes apart, as Rob was trying to keep her on the line long enough for this guy to finally grab her. It is possible, but I don't find it likely. From all accounts, I believe that Rob really did care about Angie, and he wasn't exactly made of money, so he couldn't afford professionals that likely took place in the early abduction of Daniel Embo and Richard Patron. If all he could find was this grungy-looking old bearded guy in his beat-up pickup truck, I think that there would have been plenty of evidence from the loose holes in this case. Another odd theory that is, again, possible, but one personally I don't put much faith into, is that Angela orchestrated her disappearance herself. Perhaps wanting to start a new life somewhere, instead of simply running away, she had this whole thing staged out so it looked like she was being abducted or kidnapped. In this theory, she made up the whole conversation about some creepy guy in a truck circling her, but instead was just setting the scene before screaming and making off with her partner. Like I said, it's possible, but it just doesn't make much sense the more we think about it. I mean, if she wanted to run away, there were far easier ways to do it with less risk of being caught. Again, there's no evidence or reports whatsoever of her being unhappy with Rob or just her life in general. No one around her could find a reason why she would want to just make herself disappear. To me, this theory has virtually no chance of being realistic. For some reason, and another theory which I find a bit of a stretch... I've seen several people online making a connection between Angela Hammond's disappearance and the serial killer Kenneth McDuff. Now, McDuff was a serial killer who murdered in the 60s and 1990s. This kind of crime does somewhat fit his M.O. He did forcibly abduct several of his victims. At one point, he actually kidnapped a girl in broad daylight at a car wash with people around. Literally just went over and forced her back into her truck before driving away, even with so many people around. With that said, it would make sense that McDuff could absolutely have done this crime. However, all of his recorded crimes took place in Texas. 
Now, I could not find any reports of McDuff even being in Missouri at the time of this crime. He would move up to Kansas City from Texas in 1992, a year after Angela would go missing, so perhaps he had been up there before. Currently, though, there is no evidence to link this serial killer to Angela, and McDuff never confessed to her crime. Some also believe that Angela's abduction could have something to do with two other women who suffered similar circumstances in Missouri. In January and February of 1991, two other women also went missing. Cheryl Kennedy was last known to be locking up her store one night, never to be seen again. Another woman named Trudy Darby would be abducted from her workplace, which was also robbed. Trudy's body would later be found, dead to shotgun shots to her head. Though there was no actual evidence to link these crimes, some people speculate that two of these cases, or even all three, may have something in common. All of these theories aside, however, to this date there is still no clues as to what happened to Angela Hammond after getting into that truck. She would never be seen again. The third and last case that we'll be looking at is the disappearance of Laureen Ron. And this case was suggested by Pete, so thank you, Pete. This is certainly one of the oddest cases that I've come across so far during this podcast. Laureen Ron was a 14-year-old girl in 1980 when this event took place. She was a smaller girl, 5'4 and 90 pounds, with blue eyes and brown hair. Laureen lived in Manchester, New Hampshire with her mother, Judith Ron, on the evening of April 26, 1980. Judith left her daughter alone in their apartment to go out of town to see her boyfriend, who was a professional tennis player who was in a tournament. Though Laureen normally joined her mother on such trips, she had asked her mother to be left back this time so she could have some fun with her friends. It was spring break at her school, after all. Judith gave her daughter permission and then left for the day. Laureen and her friend Kristen, along with one of their guy friends, started to enjoy the day to themselves, drinking beer and wine without any adults around. Supposedly, sometime later in the day, the boy said he heard voices in the hallway and ran out thinking it was Laureen's mom Judith coming home early and saying he didn't want to get into any trouble. Later on to the police, he mentioned that he heard Laureen lock the back door behind him, which will become important later on in the story. Late in the night, Judith was returning home from her boyfriend's tennis tournament. Upon getting home, she saw right away something very strange about the apartment when she noticed that none of the lights in the hallway were on. Upon further inspection, she found that every single hallway light bulb in the three-story apartment building had been unscrewed. Very odd, but things just continued to get stranger from here on out. Upon arriving at her front door, Judith found it unlocked and walked into her apartment. Though it is mentioned in many sources that this door was unlocked, I couldn't find further info if this alarmed Judith right away, or if it wasn't anything unusual with Laureen being home with some company. Glancing in her daughter's room, she saw the girl lying in her bed, or at least that's what she assumed. Sometime later, Judith went to wake her daughter, only to discover that the person sleeping in the bed wasn't Laureen, but was instead her friend. Laureen was nowhere to be found inside the apartment. Obviously becoming alarmed, Judith asked the girl where her daughter was. The friend said that Laureen told her she could sleep in the bed while she took the sofa. That was all she remembered. 
Looking around the apartment, Judith saw that her daughter's new sneakers were still in her room, along with all her clothes. This suggests that Lorraine more than likely did not simply run away, or at least hadn't taken any of her belongings with her. She also found the back door open, not locked like it had been just a short while earlier when the boy had left the place. Other than that, there was nothing else showing as to what happened that night in the apartment. There was no clues, no signs of forced entry, nothing disturbed that could suggest a struggle. Laureen Ron had simply vanished. After Judith initially contacted the police, they said that she had probably just run away from home for a short while and just wrote off the case. The police did not heed anything that Judith said about her daughter, saying Laureen was not the type to do this kind of thing, and also the obvious fact that all of her stuff was left behind. To me, this is just plain lazy police work. The local law enforcement waited nearly a month before even considering other possibilities and suspecting something foul might have happened. Most people know that the first couple days in a possible abduction are crucially important in trying to collect clues and putting the word out to the community. And the local police in this case missed that window by several weeks. After finally taking this case seriously and beginning investigating, the police believed the most likely situation was that Laureen had stepped out the back of her apartment with the intention of either staying right outside or coming back soon, which would explain why the back door was not locked shut like it had just been earlier that night. Beyond that nugget of brilliant investigative work, however, absolutely nothing else could be determined by the police from the scene of the apartment, or talking to Judith Ron, or both of Laureen's friends. Speaking of the two friends, the girl that was close to Laureen's age and the boy a few years older, some have speculated that perhaps either one or both had something to do with the abduction. If you are talking about a planned attack with someone who knew Laureen, who better than the two actually get the apartment that night, well, it turns out that pretty early on in the police investigation, they ruled the two out as suspects completely. Both had been drinking through the day, so it's unlikely they would be clear-headed enough to pull this off without leaving some type of evidence. I mean, the girl was practically passed out in Lauren's bed, not even waking when Judith arrived home. Besides the fact that they were both still teenagers, it's not really probable that they would have the know-how to pull this off without getting caught or wanting to confess later on. The obvious explanation is, of course, the easiest. The two were just her friends, so they would have no motive to do this kind of thing. It is worth noting, though, that the boy who was there that night ended up killing himself five years later. Again, if you are trying to force a connection, you could say that the guilt of this crime was eating away at him. But everyone around him, as well as the police, have been adamant in their belief that he had nothing to do with Laureen's disappearance. The months passed, and still there was absolutely no signs or clues as to what in the world happened to Laureen. There was no contact made, no ransom notes, nothing of any kind that could give the police any leads. However, six months after the night of the disappearance, yet another oddity occurred in this case. Judith Ron discovered three unexplained calls on her phone bill. These three calls originated from California. What's odd about that is that neither Judith or Laureen had any family members or known contacts who were living in California at the time. Now, for the younger listeners wondering how it's possible for calls made in California to show up in a New Hampshire phone bill, back in the day of landline phones, it was possible to make a third-party call from any phone if you told the operator to charge the call to someone else. 
the operator was then supposed to call that number for approval PIN number. It's possible that somehow someone in California was able to get this PIN number from the Ron residence. Or perhaps the operator just went on trust and didn't bother checking back with Judith. Such things were known to happen sometimes. Regardless, the police finally had some type of lead to follow, even if it was all the way across the country. Two of the phone calls came from motels, one in Santa Monica and the other in Santa Ana. Nothing really came out of those two phone calls. The third, though, was to a special hotline number for teen sexual assistance. For those wondering, this type of hotline could be used for a variety of purposes, such as general sexual information, advice for rape or those sexually abused, info on HIV and AIDS, and more importantly to this case, teens who are homeless or runaways. This seemed like the first big break in this case for the investigators. The police contacted the physician who was in charge of the hotline. Unfortunately for them and Judith, he claimed to have no knowledge of Laureen. Once again, the police were at a dead end. It must be mentioned though that five years after initially interrogated, the doctor went back on his remarks and said that he might actually know something. His wife from time to time would take in runaways, and the doctor said that he remembered now that one of them may have been from New Hampshire. No doubt this was probably good news to Judith at the time, but other than that vague statement, the doctor could offer no more information. I'm not really sure how reliable his word can be in the first place, taken five years later after he initially denied knowing anything to the police. Also, saying one of the girls may have been from New Hampshire isn't exactly the best clue, or actually useful in any way really. The doctor would continue on and also made another claim and another possible lead. He said that his wife worked with a woman named Annie Sprinkle, a woman who had ties to the pornography industry. The doctor said this Miss Sprinkle might have information on a number of runaways who tried to join the porn business, mentioning perhaps this is where Lorraine ended up. Now, this is where the investigators just really go above and beyond their civic duties. In a brilliant piece of police work, the detectives in charge of the case decided that the best way to see if Annie had any connections to the missing teen was not to actually ask or interrogate the woman, but to instead spend their time cruising through and watching her recent pornographic movies to see if they could spot the missing teen in any of them. Now, I'm not sure who is more to blame for this, the cop who actually came up with this idea, or the superior officer who approved of this type of detective work. Anyways, after this grueling and strenuous investigation of Annie Sprinkle's porn videos, the cops did not find any glimpse of Lorraine, much to the surprise of no one. As far as I was able to find in my research, I can't find any sources that actually say the police ever talked to Annie Sprinkle, or at least no comments or official statements came out. Once again, it seemed another lead just as quickly turned into a dead end. For years after the disappearance, there literally were no clear clues or ideas as to what in the world happened to this teenage girl. It's like she simply stepped out of her apartment and walked right off the face of the earth. There are a few instances of friends and others in the community claiming to have seen Laureen or even received possible phone calls from her, but these also led to nowhere. 
Speaking of phone calls, Judith, Lorraine's mother, for some time after the disappearance, was receiving strange calls. According to her, these calls seemed to usually come right around 3.45 a.m. Every time she received any of these odd calls, though, she could hear nothing on the other end. The family also received similar calls around the next couple of Christmas holidays, but whoever was on the other end would not respond to either Judith or her other daughter, Lorraine's sister, and would just hang up shortly after. Eventually, some years later, Judith would move down to Florida, leaving her old phone number behind, and would never receive any of the bizarre silent calls again. Judith still believes that her daughter is alive, most likely making it to California, which would explain the three phone calls charged to their home number. The police came to the thought that there were more likely was some type of foul play involved in her disappearance, though. Whatever the case, to this day, Laureen Ron's disappearance is still a complete mystery. It is worth noting that two other girls in the same area disappeared as well, around the same time as Laureen. However, there just aren't any links to suggest that they are connected in any way besides the fact that three girls just disappeared. The three cases happened under different circumstances, and one of the missing was a 26-year-old woman, suggesting this wasn't a serial abductor who had a certain type. The fact, though, that there are two other mysteries around the same time is often brought up for those who discuss this case. However, without a single shred of evidence to link any of them together, in my opinion, makes it a flimsy theory at best. As to any other further theories for this disappearances, there are several, but most are entirely speculative in nature without much evidence to back it up. Some believe that Laureen ran away on her own and that there was no outside help or foul play involved. The fact that these three calls from California showed up on the phone bill might suggest that Laureen made it there and was able to charge several calls to her home. There are several reasons against this theory, however. One is the odd circumstances involving the light bulbs at her apartment. Remember that all of the hallway lights in all three floors of the apartment were unscrewed, making the outside completely dark. To me, it seems like this is an odd coincidence if this had nothing to do with her disappearance. This type of thing just doesn't happen for no reason. Some have countered by saying that Laureen and her two friends might have unscrewed the bulbs themselves, maybe as some sort of drunken prank. I'm not too sure on this, I've had my fair share of dumb acts after a few drinks, but I can't see anyone getting excited or thinking it would be an awesome thing to go around unscrewing bulbs. Not to mention the fact that these bulbs were probably on all the time, and those older bulbs would have been scorching hot to the touch. Due to my interest in these type of cases, I've researched a ton of different abductions and disappearances, and to me, the whole unscrewed light bulb thing just sounds a lot more likely to be the work of some kidnapper trying to set the scene to make his easy grab, rather than the act of three buzzed teenagers. The next issue is with the phone calls Judith received, the silent ones that usually came in the early morning hours. Those who take the stance Lorraine was alive say it was her making the calls, perhaps wanting to apologize or explain herself to her mother but finding herself unable to speak the words, and would end up hanging up quickly. Also, calling at 3.45 a.m. does seem odd, but if she in fact did make it to California, it would make it 12.45 over there, which I guess is a more reasonable hour to make a phone call. It does seem possible that that could be an explanation, but again, I have my doubts. Judith said that she never heard anything on the other end, 
So if it was Lorraine, you'd think that she would at least make some type of noise, even if it was just a scared or nervous stutter. On the other hand, some say it was the kidnapper or person responsible calling to torment Judith. Again, it's possible, but from the cases I've researched where this type of sadistic act takes place, such as my earlier show on the original Night Stalker who would call and taunt his victims, they almost always speak or threaten on the phone. You'd think that Judith would hear something, even if it was just some disturbing heavy breathing on the other end. I actually read some article online who say they think the calls were actually automated, which would explain why they seem to call at the same time. This would also explain why there was no actual person or sounds on the other line. There was never any human that Judith was talking to in the first place. Seems possible as well. I'm not sure why Judith or the police wouldn't ever try to trace these calls, but I never found anything in my research that said that they attempted to find out who was making these strange, silent calls at night. By now, it will most likely never be known. The last issue I have with this theory that Lorraine ran away is with motive. No one in the family or her friends suggested to the police that Lorreen wanted to run away. Also, if she did plan this out, why did she leave all her belongings at home? Did she literally just run away with nothing but the clothes on her back? Finally, if you're going to run away, why do it after a day of drinking, while leaving one of your friends passed out on your bed? I mean, the more I think about this case, the more I'm convinced that Lorreen did not run away willingly, or as planned, but instead was abducted. For why or what reason, I cannot say. I know there are plenty out there who would disagree with me, and like Lorraine's mother Judith, still believe that she is alive and will one day contact her mother. But I just don't see it. Like I said earlier, I looked into a lot of these type of disappearances and cases, and happy endings that wrap up everything just almost never happen. I may be a pessimist, or it might just be my usual stance of thinking the simplest explanation is usually the correct one, or it could just be the way that I interpret the few vague clues and circumstances around this case. But what I think happened was that Lorraine either stepped out her back door or opened it when someone knocked, perhaps thinking it was her male friend coming back after running off scared. Because all the light bulbs had been unscrewed, it was total darkness outside. Dark enough where the abductor could sneak up and pounce on Lorreen without her seeing or recognizing who it was. It could be she was still pretty tipsy from drinking all the beer and didn't even really know what was going on until he had her subdued. Lorraine's friend could have already been passed out in her bed, not waking or hearing a struggle even if it did happen. So that's just my take on the night of the disappearance. As for the rest, I don't know what to make of all the California nonsense that came later. It does seem odd to have those three charged calls made from that state purely by coincidence, but it is possible. I think the police were most likely just chasing breadcrumbs and perhaps not taking the case very seriously at all. Though to be fair, if breadcrumbs are the only thing available, that's all you can work with. Lorraine Ron would be 50 years old if she was still alive today. Though there is a chance that somehow, someday this mystery will be solved, as for now the fact remains that Lorraine Ron vanished completely without a trace. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Now these types of crimes are always unnerving to me. To think that a person could be enjoying a night out on the town, or having a hangout with some friends while the parents are away, or even just talking on a payphone, and then just simply vanish. 
It also must be unbearable for the family and friends, having no idea as to what has happened, and more disturbing, never getting any sort of closure to your loved one's fate. Just imagine having a friend or a relative, saying goodbye and watching them walk out of a bar, or even talking to them on the phone when suddenly they scream and the line goes dead. For all those people involved in the cases discussed in this episode, they have had to suffer unknowing for decades. The only hope they can cling to is that just maybe, one day, someone will come forward or some piece of evidence will be discovered that will finally bring an answer to the question, where did they go? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. If you would like to further discuss any of the cases in this episode or provide your insight or a different theory, please contact us at strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. If you have any ideas for future topics and episodes, whether they be mysteries, crimes, or even something paranormal, please send in your suggestions as well. You can also visit our website, strangematterspodcast.com, to listen, comment, or download all of our episodes. Strange Matters is a member of the Dark Myths Collective. If you are interested in hearing other podcasts that discuss mysteries, legends, crimes, history, and more, please visit darkmyths.org to see all the great podcasts available. Finally, we ask if you are listening to us on iTunes, please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It means a lot to us, and it helps promote the podcast so we can find new listeners. Until the next episode of the Strange Matters Podcast, take care, everyone.